own nameless and numbered ones. Tonight, we are going to play 31. What is 31, pray tell? Ah, well, 31 is war. And as the old saying goes, war is hell. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Rob Zombie's 31. Happy Halloween, motherfuckers! We are not. We have some very colorful heads for you tonight. And they're here for one reason. And for one reason only. Hosted by Marjorie. Two little clowns I know took a fancy to her. So I think she might be sticking around for a bit, huh? Stuart. I'm not here to make you happy. I'm not here to brighten your dismal day. And I am certainly not here to elicit an amused response. And Arnie. And what I do, unfortunately for you, <laughs> I do real well. This podcast contains harsh language, detailed plot spoilers, and scary clowns. Christ almighty, you Jesus freaks are so fucking sensitive. Listener discretion is advised. 31 has begun! Welcome to our review of 31. Starring Sherry Moon Zombie. Jeff Daniel Phillips, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, Meg Foster, Richard Brake, Malcolm McDowell, Judy Gleason, Jane Carr, directed by Rob Zombie. They call me Podcast Head. Now, I don't call myself Podcast Head, mind you, but they do. I call myself Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA, and understand one thing, I ain't no fucking fan of Rob Zombie. <laughs> And this is Marjorie, and I am a fucking fan of Ron Zombie. <laughs> happy Halloween, everybody! Yes! Happy, happy Halloween, 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 happy, happy Halloween, hey, Rob Zombie. Yeah, get your silver shamrock mask ready, because it's Halloween. And why not celebrate Halloween with 31, as in October 31, the latest film by, yes, Rob Zombie. We haven't officially said we're doing all of his movies, and yet, here we are again. And I doubt if we're going to continue to be completists with Rob Zombie with his next film. Now, we all know his films get a little bit off track, stop happening, but I watched a Q&A that he did at Sundance, and he's expecting his next film to be a biopic on Groucho Marx from the writer of Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson biopic. <laughs> Oh, well, that certainly would be a change of pace and a welcome one. I didn't know that Rob Zombie was still making horror movies. When we covered his last film, Lords of Salem, the promise was that that was it. This was how he wanted to go out. That was his last horror film. But 31, I mean, I went and looked at how he pitched it, and it was a lot of killer clowns with axes. I, I don't know how you would anticipate as anything other than another horror movie. Well, it's not what he intended to do. He was working on a biker film, and he'd spent a couple years on this, and 
it wasn't working out. And per the Q&A after the Fandango screening and some interviews I read, he was having a a phone conversation with a friend venting about this biker film and said he could come up with any random dumb horror idea off the top of his head and make that movie instead. And here we have 31. (laughs) (laughs) What a pitch. You know, this one is unique, though. I mean, Rob Zombie, for more than half his life, has been crowd surfing. But did anyone think at his age he'd be crowdfunding? I mean, this movie was paid for. I don't know how much of the budget, but it seems like at least some portion of this film getting made came from the fact that he asked his fans to pay for it. That is becoming more and more common. I think the highest profile one of these the one that actually got wide release was veronica mars right i thought you were gonna say zach braff's wish you were here oh yeah but 31 i went in under the impression that he basically did like we did with our book right we started a kickstarter if we made the money we made the book if we didn't we didn't take a penny right i would assume that's how it works yeah And then there is that GoFundMe, though, which we did look at, where as soon as people pledge the money, we get the money, whether or not we make our goals, and then it's all very hazy on if we even have to make the book, or we just take people's money. (laughs) Side note, the book is still coming, guys. We didn't take (laughs) your money in vain. We worked really hard, and one day we'll be able to talk about all of the pitfalls we've had, but I think we're very happy with where it's at, and you will be getting it pretty soon. Yeah, we posted a big update to Kickstarter with some proof pages just last week. So check that out if you're interested in the progress. But we have to deliver. I mean, because we use Kickstarter, that's legally binding. Yeah. Whereas GoFundMe, shady. Well, those are the two big ones, right? I mean, we both knew people who'd done each of those. Have you ever heard of fanbacked.com? I heard a bit only because I was trying to research this movie and I went and saw what he posted and kind of how he pitched the movie to fans. But it wasn't clear to me how much he was asking for or how much he raised. He was asking for money, all of it, but there was no goal. Fan backed allows you to do Kickstarter method or GoFundMe method, but even GoFundMe sets a financial goal and says whether or not you made it. Fan backed just allows you to take money and never say how much you got and never say how much you need. Okay. To be fair, I I mean, the obvious pitfall of that is that, yes, you could take that money and do whatever you want with it. But for a movie, if you're financing an independent film, that's a lot of money. And that's way more than what we raised for a book. So I can imagine not wanting to set a goal and not being able to meet it. You want to collect whatever people are willing to throw at you. Which is what he did. He actually crowdfunded this twice. He did one campaign and took all that money. And then he did another campaign nine months later and took all that money too. But when asked how much he made in an interview, he's like, I don't want it to be about money. I'm trying to raise money to put into the film. But I feel like when you talk money, that's the one thing that really damaged the industry over the years. (laughs) Uh, So either he didn't make crap on it or he's made so much he doesn't want to spill it. Yeah. He said that people say that movie cost that much, it must be awesome, or it didn't make that much money, it may be a piece of shit. I'm making art. If people like it, great. If they don't like it, great. But I hate when money comes into it, which is why he's asking you for all your money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know what? I'll leave that alone. Uh, Whatever, Rob. I I agree with one thing. The amount of money that he raised shouldn't be the quality. Well, 
Here's how much he raised. It helped with editing the film. He said he kept all the money back and then he got backing for this film like any studio film or independent film would get backers. But he knows films always cost more. And so all the crowdfunding came in at the end when he wanted a little more time editing and a little more promotion. So this movie was made on standard movie backing. This movie was filmed, set up, costumes, actors paid, all through traditional backing. Mm -hmm. And the crowdsourcing came in at the very tail end. Yeah, okay. That's kind of what I suspected, was that he put the movie together as he normally would, as any independent person would. You find the financiers, and you have the money to hire the cast and move forward, but you have all of this other money coming in from fans, and that allows you to do the editing or whatever else. I also think Rob got into the business of haunted houses. I do remember in 2013, just outside of L.A. here in Pomona, he started the Great American Nightmare, which is sort of the Rob Zombie-themed horror mazes, slash wrestling show slash rock concert slash carnival but i think that that was maybe a source of inspiration for this movie he would even have a maze dedicated to 31 before the movie was even out i think it also gave him sort of a a creative outlet i think that it might have influenced the story the idea of people coming through a murder world for lack of a better word and and encountering all these dangerous clowns it's it's kind of what those mazes were from what i heard i didn't actually get myself out to pomona but basically it sounds like the event that he put on was very similar to this movie except no one died yeah before he did it in la i'm actually acquaintances with the gentleman who puts on the halloween shows at universal studios and that's where zombie started all this and he actually talked to me at length about working with zombie and he's the theme park guy and zombie was the creative and coming up with something that was legitimately frightening and not necessarily all ages family friendly for universal and he invited me out and i just couldn't make it i wish i had though i mean zombie himself wouldn't have been there but it would have been an awesome experience yeah what's he promoting with it being a haunted attraction a horror movie this is another rob zombie redneck splatterfest right he made it sound like he could create a film so violent that it wouldn't be released through a traditional theatrical venture that you'd have to pay Rob in order for him to be able to make his vision. And I definitely don't think that's true now that I've seen the film. But what they seem to be selling was killer clowns at an NC-17 level. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think he went back to the well. Yeah, yeah. And I even have my own idea. There's a light bulb that went off in the middle of this movie. I think I know exactly where he got the idea for this movie, but I'll save it until we get there. Well, he got the idea for this movie because he's a carny kid. He grew up in a traveling carnival. He based many of the characters and even the frickin' story about the gorilla show off of his real-life childhood experiences. And this isn't very dissimilar from his very first film, House of a Thousand Corpses, I feel like was kind of the same thing. But he certainly picked something timely. I mean, scary clowns, right? If That is not perfect for this Halloween. Technically, really, though, clowns aren't... All the killers. I wouldn't, The clowns are just two of them. Well, they're all in some kind of face makeup and wig. I think they're all, all the heads are kind of clowny. You think? See, I only thought the two guys 
Psycho Head and the other guy were the only obvious clowns. We'll get to it. We'll talk. We can talk about it as they go through if they're all clowns. I mean, admittedly, it starts by, I'm not a fucking clown. But they're clowns. Yeah. Strange release for this. I think it comes with the territory of having untraditional funding. But, uh, you know, we didn't know when we were going to exactly do this. The best information I could find was that this was opening theatrically fairly wide last weekend. But in fact, it didn't open in LA or New York or anywhere in the country that I could find. There have only been two theatrical one-night-only screenings through Fathom Events that I've seen advertised. And I was able to go to the second one of those about a week and a half ago. But difficult to find this movie, other if unless you want to go to iTunes. They didn't even announced they were doing two Fathom events. They announced they were doing one Fathom event, and we happened to be going to Washington, D.C. over Labor Day weekend. And we flew in a day early so that we could get in there and see this film the next night because it was our only chance. Mm-hmm. So we thought. And then we go to this fucking Regal Theater in Chinatown. It's a piece of shit theater. It looks really nice on the inside. This asshole is in front of me pirating the fucking movie on his iPhone. So that's out of the corner of my eye the whole time. And they announce it's with music videos and a Q&A. Well, it starts with music videos and Zombie, he makes better movies than music videos. I'll just say that. <laughs> you didn't like gore whore? <laughs> Get your boots on? It was really kind of sad to see Sherry Moon Zombie do the thriller dance. <laughs> I agree. The song was good. It really see, I would say that I feel like his best music may definitely be behind him. His best music is behind him. I will say that and I kind of like his past music though and I didn't think this was all that bad. Some of his new stuff grows on me. Like the stuff of educated horses I didn't like initially and then as I listened to it more it became better. I want to know how this movie does not have an electric head. If he's going to have all these heads, I feel like you'd go back to more human than human. But we met up with some friends. It was actually kind of fun. We happened to be going. Other friends were in town for the same reason we were. But neither of us knew the other was going to 31. So like on the walk there, we ran into them. And then in addition to having a disturbed performance where I did tell the usher and he's like, okay, I'll take care of it. They let him pirate the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. But then they never did the fucking Q&A. Nope. Oh, really? The music videos were for music not even in the movie. They didn't show the Q&A. Yeah, I could have just rented this on iTunes for $9.99 the following week. It was rental only for like a month, and it was a $10 pay-per-view rental. And it wasn't just iTunes. It was Comcast and Hulu and all of the channels had it for $10 rental. And they announced on Rob Zombie's own site, though. Friday, October 21st, after the second Fathom events, get your Blu-ray copy. Guess what? There's no fucking Blu-rays out. <laughs> and we waited in case there might be a commentary. Zombie has said the MPAA forced him to cut back the gore. And I wanted to know more about this movie. I wanted some bonus features to explain it to us so that I could bring that knowledge. So we waited to the 11th hour. No fucking Blu-ray. They now have it for sale on iTunes. No iTunes extras or anything. And then just a couple days ago, on October 25th, finally heard from Lionsgate that they are putting this out on Blu-ray December 20th, because this is the absolute perfect Christmas movie. But they're only putting out the R-rated cut, not the unrated cut. 
It is coming with two bonus features. Zombie is doing a commentary. And then there's a making of called In Hell, Everyone Loves Popcorn, The Making of 31. But no sign of the unrated cut. And the crowdsource backers were pissed off because they still don't have their movies that they were promised initially. Yeah, it's a mess. And I agreed. We committed to this because we thought, again, 31, Rob Zombie, we need to do this. But I just don't know how many people are even knowing about the movie we're talking about. Oh, well, you know, it's Halloween Rob Zombie styled. And I did go to the Second Fathom events. I did stay there. They did run the Q&A and even a behind-the-scenes featurette. So... I can talk about what was screened with that. It was not particularly revealing, but th there were a few things that he said that I think are intriguing and I'll bring up as we go through the movie. Well, enough of this preamble, boys. Why don't you give us a plot summary, Arnie? It's Halloween 1976, and a group of carnies are traveling to their next town and are ambushed and abducted. Several of the carnies are killed, but five survive and they're taken to a remote building. There, for the amusement of a group of rich people led by Malcolm McDowell's father murder, the carnies need to try to survive 12 hours of being hunted while the rich people wager who will survive. The five contestants are Charlie, played by Sherry Moon Zombie, Roscoe, played by Jeff Daniel Phillips, Venus, played by Meg Foster, Panda, played by Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, and Levon, played by Kevin Jackson. They are first hunted by dwarf Nazi Sickhead, and he stabs Levon before Venus and Charlie kill him. Then come a pair of rapist chainsaw killers, Psychohead and Schizohead. They trap some of the carnies in a cage and wound Roscoe, but both of them are killed as well. They then send in German killer Deathhead and his petite sidekick Sexhead, played by E.G. Daly, channeling her best Harley Quinn. Panda is killed, but Venus and Charlie kill both of those heads. With time running out, Father Murder calls in their best hunter, Doomhead, played by Richard Brake. Doomhead kills Venus, then Roscoe sacrifices himself, hoping to buy Charlie enough time to escape. And she does make it outdoors, but is hurt and tired, and is cornered by Doomhead. But the killer's monologuing allows time to run out. Doomhead walks away, leaving Charlie alive, while the aristocratic game masters take off their powdered wigs and makeup and go home. And Charlie walks towards civilization, but driving up behind her is Doomhead. She clenches her fist to fight as he draws his blades, and credits roll to Aerosmith's Dream On. So yes, abject horror. I do think this is a returning to roots for zombie. You mentioned House of a Thousand Corpses, Stuart. This feels like a more stylistic follow-up than devil's rejects ever did and i feel like he's kept some of the old but brought in a lot of new or at least character actors that i don't feel got the full attention and spotlight in his early films i mean the movie starts with this doomhead he's announced as the biggest baddest clown in the joint although yes don't call him a fucking clown but he's in grease paint and he's a clown and he's killing a pastor and he gives a long monologue about what it is that he does and who hires him. It is a great throwback. I like Zombie's 70s vibe on his horror. But maybe Rob Zombie has something for clowns because we did see clowns in House of a Thousand Corpses. There were clowns in Devil's Rejects. We've got some clowns in 31. We had clowns in Halloween. Michael Myers was a little clown, which was from the original, but still, it was a clown. They are pretty prevalent in his works. And 
You know, I think you would have to draw comparisons to Captain Spaulding because of the clown makeup and because of the clowns in the movie and then everyone wears some sort of makeup the killers do anyway. But I really think that Doomhead has more of a comparison to Otis from House of a Thousand Corpses, which is Bill Mosley's character, which you can't discount the actor playing Doomhead's likeness to Bill Mosley. Tall, lanky guys, very distinct voice. But Otis, as a character, gave lots of these orations and speeches and did a lot of talking versus the killing. And we see more talking out of Doomhead than we do anything else. I mean, he just goes on and on and on, which is what Otis did a lot of, too, in House of a Thousand Corpses. I could see Doomhead talking about your Mickey Mouse socks. Exactly. And... Because Bill Mosley is really great at being a chameleon, and he does that with his voice, too, but he used a very similar voice with Doomhead. I think that they kind of got that deep, resonating, borderline spooky speak that they use. And I think the key with Captain Spaulding is you didn't know he was a bad guy till the last frames of House of a Thousand Corpses. He seemed like a yokel, and he killed some robbers, but... He was far more interested in hawking his fried chicken and making a couple bucks on a murder ride. I didn't know he was setting everyone up until the very end. Whereas Doomhead just... Well, I guess he starts the film the same. Kind of a disconnected killing. The same way Captain Spaulding killed that guy. But I think this one sets Doomhead up to be a major badass in the film. There's nothing in that you think maybe anyone's good in this with the different clowns we've got going on. I mean, Captain Spaulding, you kind of think maybe he could go either way and he's got a little bit of good in him, but I don't think any of the heads have any bit of good in him. Doomhead comes in in this three-minute no-cut monologue, and I gotta give some credit to that actor, Richard Brake. I looked him up after seeing this, and while he's been in stuff, I've seen quite a bit of it, there's only two roles I could close my eyes and see him in. He was Joe Chill, who killed Bruce Wayne's parents in Batman Begins. And then, in Kingsman The Secret Service, he had a bit part in a memorable scene. He's the one who drugs the teens with Rohypnol, and then stands over them as the train is coming, and saying, is Kingsman worth dying for? I remember him. He's got a memorable dental work. His smile, if that's what you want to call it. His leer, his teeth are intimidating. And yeah, this is certainly uh, less amusing than Captain Spaulding. It announces he's just not trying to entertain you at this point. That it's all about delivering the blood. And I don't feel like I saw a whole lot of splatter. I think this opening scene really sets the tone that this is going to be a really freaking dark movie. I mean, House of a Thousand Corpses had some levity in it, I think, and Devil's Rejects had a little bit of levity in it. This, there's nothing. And you get this real great sense that he is just so fucked up in this. I mean, he's got this speech. I'd almost equate it to like Sam Jackson in Pulp Fiction about going on and on where he's talking. It's kind of that kind of captivating speech. Oh yeah, I agree completely. I also feel in some ways, this is Rob Zombie talking to the audience. I mean, if we look at Rob Zombie's filmography and we have reviewed it all, the last film, which I at that point wished was his last film, Lords of Salem, before that, we never reviewed the direct-to-DVD animated Haunted World of El Superbisto, but I couldn't even <laughs> finish it. I turned it <laughs> off halfway through. And then the film before that in theaters was Halloween 2. So if you look at Halloween 2 and Lords of Salem, he 
probably is burned a little bit by reception to both those films. And here you've got Doomhead walking out, looking at the audience going, I'm not here to fucking please you. I think that this is Zombie telling the audience, he's not here for your entertainment, he's here for his. And what you're going to see is the movie he wants to make. And he actually said this in one of the Q&As, if you don't like it, fuck you. And you get this amazing Doomhead scene and you think he's going to be this huge running thing in the movie because he gets the very first scene, it's powerful, and then we don't see Doomhead until the very end, which is kind of a trick. And I also like the visual style of how he walks in. Just some cool camera work going on there. He starts so far out of focus that he looks like one of those aliens from the 50s autopsy films. His legs are so spindly and his neck so long. And as he comes into focus, he's shown to be human. At first, I thought it was going to be like Dr. Satan, the Ozzy Osbourne cover from House of a Thousand Corpses. I got a different reference. I th- I was thinking very much of Droogs coming down the tunnel to beat up the hobo. It felt very Clockwork Orange, and I get a lot of Clockwork Orange. Malcolm McDowell will be in this movie, and I do get that that is a, a vibe. The idea of violence as entertainment and, and ballet is sort of worked into this movie. So there's a bit of setup when Doomhead is giving his initial speech to the pastor guy. We hear the pastor talk about let his wife Georgina go and then we hear later on in the van as they're driving along the group of carnies or whatever I guess that's what we can call them carnies is talking about a church group that disappeared last year and then when we get to the funhouse type room because each of these rooms are differently themed we get to the funhouse type room that Schizo Head and Psycho Head manage. So it is kind of like a haunted house because these guys are managing each different rooms, it seems. And they have a woman tied to the floor, which she says her name is Georgina. They call her Fuckbag. But we find out, you know, you're supposed to like put that link together that that was the pastor's wife that they were talking about. Yeah, and I caught this on the second viewing. Doomhead at the beginning tells the pastor. The pastor's like, where's my wife Georgina? And he says... A couple of clowns have taken a liking to her, so she's going to stick around for a while. But that's a throwaway line at the start of a movie that I don't think people would catch on the first time. Okay, I had a question about a few people that pop up in this movie, and that was definitely one of them. But okay, I definitely picked up the fact that later we're told a church group was abducted last Halloween, and it's just to be presumed that they don't really go into great details as to why this movie is called 31, but the game is 31, and that's because on October 31st, every year, they spend Halloween abducting a group of people and then putting them through this torture. The latest being, or I shouldn't say the latest because it's 1976, but the incarnation that we're focused on for this film is a pack of carnies who are just riding through America, enjoying weed, sex, and debauchery. Yeah, I'd like to point out this is one year to the day before House of a Thousand Corpses. Zombie put that one in 77. This is in 76. He certainly loves the 70s. You know, he's a little bit older than us, grew up very heavily in that. He was 11 years old in 1976. So these are boyhood memories of this time. He would have been working at the carnival. 
But goddamn was I scared. First of all, you said he brought in new people. Yeah, but who's the first name on the credits? Sherry Moon Zombie, who was the weak link in his past three movies. Yeah, you know what? I'm tired of dissing her. I mean, it's odd. At this point, everyone understands. Only Rob doesn't understand that she is a bad actress. And so that she's coming here is a given. Of course, she's going to be a part of this troupe. I look forward to her playing Groucho Marx. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this much. She's held up well. What she does has always been the stripper vixen thing. And I think she still looks like she could work the pole. She has held up well. And maybe Rob springs for some Botox for her. I don't know. But she was a dancer, technically, not a stripper. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) I stand corrected. (laughs) I'll say this much. I thought in Halloween, Halloween 2, and Lords of Salem that she was looking like she'd lived the hard partied life heavy smoker had the lines in her face but in halloween she was supposed to look like that in both of them and lords of salem yeah she was a recovering addict and in her own instagram account um (laughs) you follow sherry moon zombie on instagram well yeah you don't even follow me on instagram i didn't know you were on instagram (laughs) they made her look younger and better here she looks the best here that she's looked on screen since the original House of a Thousand Corpses where she was so sexy as baby. And I'm going to argue against you, Stuart, because she won me over this film. Is she great? No. But she is horror movie fine in this film and the best I've seen her since she was playing baby. Uh, She's bad in this film, but you know what? I was curious. I'm like, has anyone ever worked with her Other than Rob Zombie, has she ever done anything else? Has she ever been hired? Has she ever filled out an application and someone agreed to hire her for a job? I found two movies on her resume. Toby Hooper apparently remade Toolbox Murderers a couple years ago. I never saw it. Looks like it's only a cameo. And then she is playing Evil Queen in something called Scissorings 2, which I've never heard of any of the Scissorings trilogy. I can't find them. They don't seem to be available in any format. So I'm going to argue no. I'm going to argue that everyone (laughs) thinks that she is bad and she doesn't get work because she does these Rob Zombie movies. I wouldn't doubt that. I'm not saying that if I were casting for a horror film, I'd seek her out for anything beyond name factor. I mean, she does have that. But I thought here she did really well as this 70s carny. I like the rapport among all these people in the RV. I mean, you've got a lot of people in here. You've got the fat driver. You've got the two people screwing in the back room that were introduced to late. We've got Charlie kind of hanging out with Panda there, just going back and forth, laughing about everything. And Roscoe's talking about wanting to do a gorilla show with Venus, who I think is the aging prostitute of the carnival. I'm not quite sure what she is. I assumed she was a gypsy, like she read cards or fortune teller or something. Later she says, pussy, 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 money, money, money. So Yeah, there's a picture on the van of her in younger days. It's a, you know, airbrush illustration of her entangled with a big cobra. So I think at one point, I think this is her troupe. I think she runs the show. She calls all the shots and, you know, she's brought all these people together. That would make sense why Roscoe is trying to pitch the gorilla suit to her. And she mentions doing a girly show. So maybe she was the old stripper. And I get the impression Charlie is the new stripper. 
She says she runs the hustle for the girly show. Yeah. These things aren't very important. I will agree with you that these early scenes are as close to empathy as we're going to get for these characters, and they aren't too crass. I mean, there's some ribald jokes, there's some needless nudity, but by and large, I think that, yeah, these are about as likable as Rob Zombie characters get, and you will have affection for them. What's frustrating is nothing that they do is set up for what they're going to go through. I don't learn anything about their character and how it will aid them once they're thrust into a kill-or-be-killed situation. And that nudity, it's right like Lords of Salem. It's not necessarily the nudity you want to see. <laughs> Depending on how you feel about Levon and his taste in women. Trixie in the back, who she's so dumb, she has, they have to explain to her a semen joke. I had trouble keeping everybody's name straight, except for Charlie, I think, and Venus. It seemed like everyone else was just kind of interchangeable, and I don't know if that was intentional. But I actually had to pull up a list of who was who because I had trouble with that. Oh, I did too. They don't say the names that often. And when writing the plot summary, I could match the actors if I knew them to the names. Like Jeff Daniel Phillips has a very recognizable stash. And so when I looked him up, I'm like, okay, it's Roscoe. But I was a little worried. There's so many people here. They're going to whittle them down really fast. And we're going to be in a very House of a Thousand Corpses type situation. There there were four. Here there's five that get trapped in this scary place. But initially, I was thinking, God, there's so many people here. And I was kind of looking forward to see all of them get slaughtered one by one. Don't you remember Welcome Back, Cotter? It's the black guy, Panda. He was in that show? Yeah. He was Washington. He was? It was, yeah. His voice changed. Well, he's an old man now, not a young man, yes. (laughs) Yeah. But... If you're not Horshack, I'm not catching you off of Welcome Back, Cotter. I guess if you're Mr. Cotter or John Travolta. John Travolta. I definitely feel like Rob has picked his lookalike to be in this film. That Roscoe, I assume he's going to be one to make it towards the end, all the way to the end, perhaps, because it's a stand-in for Rob. And the fact that he takes some kind of interest in Charlie slash Sherry Moon, I feel like he's projecting himself and his muse into the movie. Although there's another chick with him as well named Snoopy. Yeah, there's quite a few there. I always kind of thought Panda and Charlie had a thing. Well, and you know, it's funny you mentioned Jeff Daniel Phillips. He does make it to the end and he gets a lot of screen time. And he gets a lot of lines. He actually has done a hell of a lot more. And I don't know if you guys caught this, but he played one of the cavemen on that old ABC sitcom. Remember the Geico <laughs> cavemen? Well... I didn't see the sitcom because it was canceled before I uh, was able to turn on the television. I didn't see it either. However, he was in that. We actually saw him at a horror convention a few months ago. He was in Halloween 2. That's the zombie connection there. And Lords of Salem. I remember he was the other DJ that had a crush on Sherry. I mean, he's actually really good right now on Westworld, the TV series that I never would have watched had we not done those reviews last year for donors. But he looks a lot like Rob. And I don't think that's an accident he looks somewhat like rob he's he doesn't look like a human werewolf i've always thought that rob zombie really looked so hairy that he was a step away from michael landon i don't think so i mean he's just got a lot of hair back when he had dreads they were prevalent but i mean he's just got regular hair now like you or i you never see any part of him except like raccoon eyes peering out from hair he has hair growing out of his cheeks 
At any rate, I definitely thought that these were the focal points. Even though it did feel like a very big cast, I assumed that these were the stars of the movie. And indeed, they get more screen time here. It, it's stated that the bus is on empty. Sometimes they make it too easy, right? Like Rob Zombie's bus is out of gas and they, they pull into this gas station here and we get Bob from the old Batman movie. Tracy Walter is the old coot that won't get up to fill your gas tank. And which Batman movie? The Tim Burton. He was Bob, the assistant to Jack Nicholson. Oh, dear God, he's gotten old and unrecognizable. <laughs> I was hoping it was makeup, but yes, he could just be living a hard life. Well, at least he gets Sherry Moon Zombie to grind on him a little bit. That can't be all bad. Yeah, that's what I mean about her getting the screen time. She gets to show off her assets, and then Roscoe also gets to have a scene with what will be a future attacker. He doesn't know it at the time, but E.G. Daly is going to size him up, trying to figure out what they're prepared for. Like, do you have any weapons? Where are you going? Basically, how can we abduct you later tonight? I'm sorry, but she would have been better as Charlie than Sherry Moon Zombie. Because I think E.G. Daly was awesome in this movie. She has held up very well and is tremendous in this. She always brings that voice. I like that he goes back and pulls some of these voices out. And E.G. Daly, of course, was in Devil's Rejects in the whorehouse there. He also pulled back out, and he did for Lords of Salem, Meg Foster, who, again, talk about hard living. I think that Rob Zombie wouldn't have it any other way. This is what he does. At this point, having seen all of his films, when does he focus on a character that's traditionally glamorous and beautiful? He has no interest in that. It's not even that he has disdain for beautiful people. He doesn't even know they exist. I'd say... The girls in Halloween, specifically Daniel Harris and Scout Tyler Thompson, I think, were conventionally attractive. And you saw how he treated them. Pretty well until he beat the shit out of them, yes. But these people don't even necessarily start as conventionally attractive, except for, of course, his wife, who he's going to glamorize. I don't think it's glamour. I don't see that she's glamorous. I mean, she is very slutty. She is very promiscuous. I mean, it's his kind of turn on. I think that's his definition of glamour. Yeah, well, okay. Then we're saying the same thing in different ways. What I'm saying is that Rob Zombie promotes white trash aesthetic. Yes. So he wouldn't be interested in people that don't look like they've drank too much, smoked too much, and lived through some horrible stuff. What makes it problematic is we're going to see these people thrust into an extreme situation. I don't see it much of a descent. My feeling is this is a typical Sunday for them, that when they get abducted on the road and they stumble to some scarecrows and get grabbed, I'm like, you know, they look like they've gotten into many a bar brawl. I don't think that they're traveling the countryside preaching the word of God or doing any good or anything. This, though, was following House of a Thousand Corpses to a T. So I really thought we'd find out that Lucky Leo was going to be in on it. He kind of mixed it up a little bit and it fooled me. By having E.G. Daly be the scout there, I thought maybe Lucky Leo would give them bad directions or something. I didn't realize we'd see E.G. Daly again. But wait a second. 
Didn't Lucky Leo have those little marionettes yeah. in his gas station? And then, yeah, they show up at the end, Arnie. Yeah, I, I agree. We will find out by the end that he is an audience for it and that he probably is too old to participate in the murders. But, yeah, is you know, this is not even House of a Thousand Corpses. This is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There was Grandpa, the character that they brought to the table to suck the bloody fingers. I mean, there's always the old one that can no longer lift the axe. According to what he said, he could lift his axe just fine for Charlie. <laughs> but then, yeah, we do get this attack in the night. And surprisingly, I don't feel the time, but that's a half an hour into the movie. Now, maybe it's because we spent a good, like, five minutes with Doomhead at the very beginning. And then we've just had these people. But I don't feel that passage of time so much when they get abducted. I would normally think with so many nondescript characters, a half an hour would be a long time to spend with them. And they're killed off so quickly that I couldn't even tell who was killed. I didn't know until they all woke up who made it, who didn't. I could tell the driver Fat Randy was killed, but I couldn't tell who else. Yeah, we got all of the characters who I can't tell you the names of were killed. The girl who was infatuated with Roscoe, the larger girl in the back is gone. No one that really mattered, I think, we lose here up front. I think the key is they needed to end up with five people. Because that whole scene is just lightning quick. The people are on them as soon as they stop. You almost don't know who all survives until they get to that house where they're all tied up. I mean, it's fast. There is a character that appears, I think, three times, and I think she's dead every time. The Snoopy, the one that's sort of, she's got dark hair and she's been hanging on to Roscoe. She, I think, is stabbed in the road. We definitely get a shot of her laying on pavement as the bus is driving away, bleeding out from the neck. She was one of the ones that stepped out to clear the road of the scarecrows. And yet I think that she pops up at least twice later into the movie. I thought she was the fuck doll, but you're saying, Marjorie, she's not. No, 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 no. She was not the fuck doll. You're right, though. She was dead in the street. We do get to see her stabbed and blood come out of her mouth. And then later they're in like a Hitler rally, a Nazi rally. And Roscoe pulls back a sheet and goes, oh, thank God it isn't Charlie. And then they pull back another sheet. And I think it's her. I assumed it was the church group since the woman on the floor was Georgina. There's a lot of repetition in this movie, but there's not a whole lot of shots to establish these other crew. The point is that they're dead because we want to see violence, not because we're meant to feel anything. And it doesn't mean anything for me that Snoopy is dead. Me either. Although I kind of liked the dumb vibe she and Trixie added to it. It it almost would have been a totally different kind of comedy movie. I could see, like, the Wayans making a white girls-like version of this with two complete airheads in the game. But, no, we whittle it down to five identifiable people. The deaths of the others isn't even satisfying. You say we want to see violence. There's a lot of very satisfying gore and violence on here. This isn't it. Is there? Yes. I'm going to argue that this movie has shitty camera work and you cannot enjoy the violence. I think that it was very dark at times. And shaky. Like it yeah, was, it was difficult really shaky. to focus on anything. The reason why we don't know when characters reappear and what's happening is because the control of the camera is very poor. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, this is the DP of Leprechaun Back to the Hood. So <laughs> obviously this is going to be some quality work. But I think that's supposed to add an element of surprise for the viewer so you don't know what's going on and maybe put you in that situation a little bit where you're a little bit confused 
along with the characters in the film. So it's kind of like bringing you into it to have you a little frazzled there. You're like, well, who the hell's left? I actually really go with the shaky cam aesthetic. I don't feel it's so tightly zoomed that you can't see what's going on. I think it adds energy to the shots to have it this way except in this scene in the dark with the scarecrows there i have no fucking clue what's going on but again i don't really necessarily need to it's the culling of the herd to tell us which five are important so they could be taken in front of malcolm mcdowell dressed like amadeus this is where it kicked in for me. This is when I knew where he got the idea for this movie. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the new Hunger Games, 1976, right? Oh. The powdered wigs, the game of death. I have to believe that Rob Zombie was on a phone with somebody, had called up his old friends at Lionsgate and said, hey, do you want to make my new horror movie? Because you made my first horror movie. And they're like, yeah, no, Rob, we don't really make that kind of Saw extreme violence movie anymore. We make Hunger Games. We make Insurgent. We make young adult sci-fi. And that probably pissed him off. And I've also heard that they haven't given him the rights to Captain Spaulding and some of the characters from House of a Thousand Corpses. He can't make another sequel because they own it. And so I think he wanted revenge. And I think that this is his version of the popular Hunger Games phenomenon. Who has the ownership of the characters, the Fireflies and et cetera and everything from the first movies he did is actually in dispute because Lionsgate says, no, he has full rights to those and zombies saying, no, they own them. So there's a pissing match going on somewhere with that. Yeah. And again, I have to believe that this is a part of it, that he probably did call them up to make this movie and they don't. Lionsgate at one point would have jumped on this concept, but the times have changed and they just wouldn't be interested in making a film like this anymore. They're too big. And yeah, maybe the audience is too shiny teenager and millennials just don't go for his raw 70s aesthetic. But whatever it is, I definitely feel like this movie is a reaction to it. Well, they are making Saw next year. They're bringing that one back out. So maybe they're going back to it. But you see Hunger Games, and with the powdered wigs, I see it. The one that kept coming in my head when I was watching this was The Running Man. I mean, we reviewed it not all that long ago on the show. You've got the very stylized killers brought out one at a time. What I think of like Battle Royale and Hunger Games, it would be the carnies have to kill each other. Here you have these gladiators coming into the match with their weaponry and their accoutrement and their WWE-like style and names. I was totally thinking Running Man and waiting for one of the heads to come out singing opera while wearing Christmas lights. I know, I kind of like the aspect of that. And there's odds and there's betting going on. But it's not like this clean organized thing like the Running Man. So Running Man, because it's futuristic, is very sleek and cool. And you have people cheering and stuff. I don't know, this was so like secret and like this underground area they had where they were doing this. It was kind of really cool. So then we get to the mansion with the survivors of the van massacre tied up in this very fancy old Victorian-like mansion with powdered wig people, one of them being Malcolm McDowell, who is reading the odds of survival of each of the survivors who are numbered. So, of course, the women get worse odds of survival, more so than the men. And it's kind of interesting because we do get to see who is left, which is good news, whittled down to five. And it's the five people that you see on the poster, which is the bigger name actors and actresses as well. 
Yeah, the lowest odds go to the women being given 500 to 1. That made me think both of them would be the final survivors, right? And one of them is, of course, but I kind of thought the other one might be too because it was unexpected. They underestimated the viciousness of females. What I don't understand is why would anyone be betting on anyone doing well? Apparently no one has ever survived this. Because I think it's part of the game for them. But why would you take that bet? No one has ever lived. In case one of them does, and maybe they get a payout on the person who's left last, even though they get killed. If your horse makes it the longest, I think you still win the kitty, don't you? Even if they don't survive, if they make it the longest? And I'm not even sure that there's much going on here in the way of wagering that is impactful to these people. We don't know anything about Malcolm McDowell and his two compatriots other than I love their style. I love their naked women servants they keep around wearing masks. It was very eyes wide shut. No, but we definitely get scenes of them like, I'll raise you this and I'll double you that. But I don't know what they do for a living. I get the impression that this is, you know, fuck it money for them. This is all money that may, they lose it every time and it goes to pay the heads and whatnot. Yeah, but that's dumb. What I mean, when you look at Hunger Games or Running Man or whatever, it's set up so that other people can bet on it. That's the design of it. The idea that they're going to set up this murder world knowing full well that no one ever escaped to try and, you know, even friendly games of poker, you know, there's some stakes involved. No one just throws good money after bad saying, we know that you're all doomed, but we're going to give you 40 to 1 odds and you 500 to 1 odds. It's it, They should have done something to make you believe that these people had a chance. The poker analogy is exactly what came to mind. I like to play poker with a little bit of stakes. And if somebody loses, you know, you're not going to make them not pay their rent, but it's going to hurt. And... I have played poker with people who don't believe that. They only play penny poker. Oh, we're just playing for fun to see who wins. And so you could go all in 18 times that night and lose a buck 50 and not feel it. That's how I feel these people are. I'm just wondering why they do this. And we don't really get a whole lot of information. If they're not doing it for money, they're doing it because they essentially want to see, uh, I guess, people turn on one another. And what that means, in order for me to invest in that, I need to understand the participants. One way that Hunger Games definitely outpaces this movie is that we understand what the stakes are and why people fight and battle. Here, I'm not even sure what it is they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to find their way out. They're just supposed to survive. So why they don't just barricade themselves into a room, I don't understand. I expected that they weren't able to and that there was some, maybe part of the rules we didn't get to see or anything like that, that maybe that's why. It's not clearly defined. No, and it's kind of cheating because... I would have been barricading myself in, finding what I can make weapons of, because they got lame-ass weapons, too. And these are carnies. They're used to getting by with what they have. Oh, the Tilt-A-Whirl's broken? Grab that kid's arm that was torn (laughs) off in it and use the membranes in order to patch it back together. I would think they could do some AT MacGyver-like shit in there, but... That's not what this movie is. This movie is going to be a standard stalk and kill. And what sets it apart, what I feel, I'm going to use the word genius on this movie, is the heads. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, I've seen this movie before. I was really tepid on the film. And then 
out comes Sickhead. The Spanish-speaking Nazi little person in face paint who's going to talk smack to all of them about fucking them up. And, oh, he is phenomenal. He was really good. Now, obviously, they pay for that right to do that. No, they're getting paid. Doomhead says he wants double his fee to stop fucking that woman in the ass. But I wonder if Doomhead is like the cleanup guy. He's the guy who goes in and fixes when the other people who are there to kill can't do it, get killed, or maybe bail. And then he is the one to make sure there are no survivors of the people they kidnap. And that's why he gets paid. I kind of envisioned everyone else, Sickhead and all his friends, pay for the privilege to do this. Like this is some sort of rich person's game, or maybe it's a poor guy who was a GoFundMe or something, and he wants to kill people. But I never got the impression that everyone else was paid too. I just thought Doomhead was paid because he was like the cleanup guy. Admittedly, I guess that is a little confusing. I mean, here, Sickhead really seems to enjoy what he's doing, but... Schizohead or Psychohead, I get them confused. One of them's begging for his life, saying, we're just trapped in here like you, they make us do this, so. Oh, but that's a point on. That wasn't Mm -hmm. to be taken seriously. All right, so yeah, we can all agree. We have all seen this movie before. There's nothing original about this concept. It goes all the way back to 1932 with the most dangerous game. What is fresh about it, or at least Rob Zombie about it, is that they're going to be these malicious... I think they're clowns, these grease paint psychos. I think he's a clown. He's got his nose painted red like Rudolph and white pancake makeup all over him. I mean, he's more Nazi than clown, but I think all of these killers are certainly clowns. I guess if you're going to find a clown as wearing white pancake makeup... Gene Simmons is certainly a clown. He's a demon. (laughs) He's a clown. Can he be both? I thought it was going to be 31 different killer clowns. So I think that this is what we were meant to expect, even though I agree. If we went to a circus and a little person, Hitler, came out, we would all want our money back for lots of reasons. (laughs) 31 clowns attacking and killing people would be an awesome, awesome movie. However, I just don't think that anybody could top killer clowns from outer space. Yeah, I'm with you on that. But as far as these go, I mean, it's where the creativity comes from. I think this movie is kind of unoriginal in lots of ways and agreed uninspired in many ways but i do feel like where it kicks in is the idea of what are they going to face next i don't particularly like these people i don't really know the rules but the excitement comes from what is he going to cook up next what does evil look like level after level and yeah i like this guy this is maybe my favorite one honestly is i I thought they called him shithead but his real name is (laughs) sickhead They actually do call him shithead, and there's a good amount of head references here, but this one is fun because his mocking tone and his sheer competence, you see him come out, and the first reaction, at least in our audience, was laughter, including us. I mean, what the hell are you seeing? But he kicks ass. He actually has a physicality that you wouldn't expect with his size. He quickly overcomes any preconceptions with just how deadly he is. Well, in real life, he's actually a professional skateboarder and is the first little person skateboarder in the world. So he's got some physicality cred there because he is an athlete. He's also really Spanish. He's from Chile. He's a tough guy who really 
There's nothing funny about him. But I think they could have played up the Nazi bit a little bit more. I mean, he's walking out with swastikas and a Hitler stash, but he doesn't make racial attacks. He doesn't... I don't know if any of the group is Jewish, but he certainly doesn't go after that. Yeah, but that's... Arnie, come on. This is all costuming with Rob Zombie. I mean, it's it has nothing to do with the politics. He's not a Nazi. He's wearing a Hitler mustache and... You know, yeah, he has one little room devoted to Hitler Youth Corps. But no, he's just playing with them. At one point, he's wearing a bunny head. I mean, he's just... <laughs> I love that. It's kind of an Alice in Wonderland moment where he's like, let me in, let me through the magic hole. And he's like, no, I'm... I, number four dies first. Unfortunately, Zombie is not going to break the pattern of black guy dies first in fact both black guys die first and the white people are going to live on quite a bit longer you know he loves tarantino and i feel like if he wanted to be badass if he wanted to impress me i know that he does this thing and quite frankly 16 years later yawn okay nazi midgets you've been there done that but what i would have been impressed with is if he actually killed his wife first that would have shocked the shit out of me. If Sherry went down, no one would have anticipated that Rob would have done that to her. That's because Rob won't do that to her. <laughs> no. Because he's not badass. And that's the problem. It would surprise you because he will never, ever do it. He has called Sherry Moon Zombie his muse. She must be in every frame of the film. I mean, I don't know if there's a monetary reason involved or if it's just he wants to put his wife in the spotlight. But, but again, as someone that has worked with Tarantino and, you know, uses gimmick casting, you know, the old Welcome Back Cotter guy and all that, he tries to do what Tarantino does, but not with the narrative. I mean, this movie is incredibly predictable about what will happen in it. It is very predictable, but some of the aspects of it make it incredibly fun, such as the heads and the weird relationship that you see start to develop between Venus and Charlie. I mean, didn't you guys get a weird vibe off that? It's like Venus was motherly to like everyone. It was kind of weird, but like particularly Charlie. Yeah, I think she had been there and done that before. I got the sense that Meg Foster was really working. She actually probably is the best actor in this, but she's not a part of this first attack. We do not see her when Sickhead is, you know, attacking. It's all in this bathroom stall. And again, Charlie is the target I just did never believe that she's in danger. I just know that it's going to be the black guy trying to save her that gets it. And he does. You know what? At this point, when watching this in theaters, the movie got me. The vibe, the camera, the lighting. I mean, they're in a room that is very much the first Saw film, right? Like every toilet in there has to be filled with the overflowing shit that they had to dig through in that first uh... Saw film. The aesthetic is right out of that film. But you know what? By the time... She's in that stall and shivering, scared with the baseball bat in the toilet stall. I'm not thinking, what's Zombie going to do? I'm into the moment. I'm into the hunt. You're right. If I stepped out of it, yeah, no way he's ever going to kill her. She's top build, yada, yada, yada. He's killed her before. I mean, she got shot up in Devil's Rejects. Last frame. Obviously, she had to die in Halloween, but... And yet he brought her back as a ghost. Yeah, I know. It, it's not like he wouldn't <laughs> do it, but you're right. There's always 
she's always made something more out of it. it. It's never been like just a throwaway kill. She's never just been a cameo. And I think that that would have been a really badass move. That, again, would have been the first thing that he could have done here to really blow me away. Because a lot of this is predictable. I mean, I you can enjoy it. Again, I enjoy this performance of this attacker. I just kind of know how it's all going to work out. And there's just not a whole lot of surprise. The surprise to me is how he takes out Levon. I just, again, as I said before, when he first comes out, he looks silly in his Nazi memorabilia, and then he goes on to kick everybody's ass. And then the way Sickhead himself is taken out, he gets his stabs in on Levon, but Charlie comes along and just smashes Sickhead across the skull and says she thinks his neck's broken and you think he's dead. And usually they save the, the killer's not really dead for the very end of the movie. But no, they pull that right here. Sighead's laying there and they assume he's dead, but they'll learn to slit people's throats a little later on and be damn sure of it when he comes back and just continues his brutal assault. But they do dispatch him and we get a tender moment as... I didn't get that <laughs> Levon and Panda were quite so close until that death scene. Yeah, no, I didn't get it until I saw the Q&A afterwards in the behind-the-scenes footage. This is what they focused on, that Rob was very impressed that he gave them this moment. I'm like, yeah, you needed to give them the moment at the beginning in order for this to be meaningful. But we had 20 minutes of them screwing around in the van, and all these guys did was talk while one was taking a shit. It just didn't feel <laughs> like a close friendship. I mean, they talked about losing their hair. I think that was the moment. So that he wants to play this for tears. It surprised me. The, the one thing that he said in his Q&A after the film that really I couldn't wrap my mind around, and I'll see what you guys think about it, you've seen all of Zombies films, was that he works very hard to make the monsters sympathetic. That he feels like he does a lot of work to create and engender uh, goodwill towards his characters. I would say the very opposite. I always feel like he is dismissive and terrible to everyone on screen. Yeah, I actually do find Michael Myers in the first movie to be incredibly sympathetic. The kid has one of the worst childhoods ever. I mean, his mom is trash. She treats him horribly. Checked up with the new stepdad. I don't know if they're married or not. He treats Michael like crap. He's neglected by everyone. No one pays attention to him. His mom tries a little bit, but not enough. I mean, he's hurting animals. He's hurting other kids at school. Kids at school are making fun of him because of his mom being a stripper. Then he gets shuffled off to a mental institution with probably Dr. Loomis being the world's worst doctor for child psych. I feel bad for him. And all he wants to do is get his sister back. That's all he wants. He doesn't know how to express himself. He's been locked away for so long. So yeah, he's very sympathetic. And I think the Fireflies are sympathetic in The Devil's Rejects. I think when they're on the run, they're dealing with a cop who's even worse than they are. And so when he is brutalizing them, it plays with moral ambiguity. Yes, they're horrible serial killers themselves and torturers and mutilators. But anytime you see people just brutalized on film, I felt as bad for the Fireflies in Devil's Rejects as I felt for Danielle Harris in Halloween. I certainly wouldn't say he's terrible to all his characters. Yeah, I mean, unflattering. I don't feel like anybody ever comes away looking good. I think that's impossible to do considering that he, first of all, dumps 
copious amount of blood on you first thing is a character anyway. I mean, I think everyone is splattered with blood within the first five minutes of them being in the maze. Second of all, I think that he has a tendency to put you in such horrible positions. I didn't feel any sympathy or empathy for any of the villains or the characters. I will tell you, I did have my favorite set of heads, which we haven't gotten to yet. Yeah, you could be thrilled by like the design, the costumes and all that. But when I think about his Michael Myers or really anything that he's done before, the witches and Lords of Salem, I don't think that he shows a human side. It's not like they're Phantom of the Opera or anything where we get that side where I see their vulnerability. I always feel like these are awful people doing awful things. I think he did that with Michael Myers. I think he really tried to show the origin of Michael Myers and to humanize him. It's Halloween time. I actually just watched a documentary on the making of Halloween, and he went on and on about that, about how he wanted to show Michael Myers was troubled. But once he is the killer, there's no sympathy for Michael Myers. There's fear. And here, you know what I feel like is he made a set of heads and even father murder and his friends who just seem like they were all designed so that NECA could make a figure line out of them. They made House of a Thousand Corpses figures and all these others. There is so much character design in them. Like the next pair of heads that come out, Schizo Head and Psycho Head. One has pussy written on his chest. The other has hard written on his chest and an arrow pointing down. I tried to get better looks at them, photographs of them online to see if there was other stuff that showed them as, dare I say, a yin and yang of heads or something. Maybe I'm looking too far. But then I realized when I buy their action figures, I'll see all I want to see. Yeah, and I, there's no dispute that that is this, the, the creativity and the fun of this movie. Is that enough? I would expect, at the bare minimum, I would expect some crazy-ass clowns showing up here. And I'm never disappointed by any of that. I always feel like that is on part. Yeah, here it's a, a little bit confrontational because they're rapists and their chainsaw is even dickhead. And so they're really always talking about sexual violence as they're, you know, swinging the chainsaws around. But before we get to them, we do have to talk about cannibalism. Unintentional, but I knew exactly what was happening when they walked in there with that food, weren't you? I didn't, but... Really? No. Arnie! So you're watching a horror movie where people are being hunted in a maze, like that's like a haunted house, and they stumble across a big feast of meat on the bone, and you think that maybe the kind killers that are running the haunted house just maybe threw out some ribs and chicken and never once occurred to you that it was their friend? I wouldn't say I knew exactly what was going to happen, but I mean, I knew that it was not a good idea to eat. Now that Stewart's brought up Texas Chainsaw Massacre, how could it be anything else? If that gas man was grandpa the one thing that bothers me with this one set is the design it's like they're outdoors at sunrise or something the set seems to go on forever because of the lighting i feel like rob zombie's like i need to make a music video hey cast come on over here to this music video set that looks nothing like any other set in this film and eat your friend yeah i mean it's all art directed he wanted to create every time we encounter a new obstacle sometimes it's a killer and sometimes yeah it's just seeing the body of your friend he wants it to look different it would get very old if all we saw were you know leaking pipes and boilers i feel like it all looks pretty much the same except for the scene and then when they get outdoors later on but 
I do have to wonder exactly how quickly can you cook human rib meat in order to be ready for a hot and tasty meal? Hmm. Yeah, this was a mistake. They should have edited this in later. They sh- this should have come after the two clowns attack. That it is almost the next scene. They walk away from the bathroom stalls and seemingly walk up to a table. I don't know how he could be prepared. And it's only been three hours and they're starving. A lot about this felt like it was uh, misplaced in the editing of the film. If there's one thing I'd excise, because this movie isn't exactly short. It's a hundred minutes long. I think you could excise the cannibalism and lose very, very little. The only thing that happens in it that would be hard to remove is that's where they're standing when Malcolm McDowell does announce Schizohead and Psychohead entering the game. And yeah, those two, they're constant desire for rape had an effect of making me feel icky and that's good to get an emotional reaction out of the audience even if it is you really hmm i i think because and maybe this is like a gender thing i didn't affect me one way or the other i guess i should have been and your side of the icky but i think it's just something that is used to instill fear when you're in that position like ah oh, i'm going to fuck your skull bitch kind of thing that <laughs> but because it's thrown out there so much it doesn't phase me yeah i think that's fair i mean rob zombie if this were the first time we were seeing one of his films or he used to make church videos then yeah this would be shocking but when you go this deep all the time the effect diminishes i don't feel like even though it is sexual violence we get it i think the environment definitely changes we get sort of a big top environment it's very clockwork orange women's bodies as furniture kind of moment when they're in a hallway that's spread legs and the doorway is labeled wet pussy and they go in and it's a woman in a cage it's a they believe it's a blow-up doll although i don't know how they could think that there's like a plated blow-up doll laying over her It didn't look like latex. It did look like paper mache. This is what they do here. They trap you and turn you into a sexual submissive. So that's sort of the theme of this big top realm. It's really perverted. And, you know, yeah, we get a couple chainsaw duels. And what may be surprising is that all four of the contestants are still standing by the end. It's the clown attackers that go down. Yeah, the only kill they get is their rape victim, who at this point... I mean, if you've been tied up for a full year and raped constantly by these guys, I almost feel that's a mercy kill. Like, (laughs) sometimes death is better, to go back to our last retrospective series. But I like a little bit of the question there. I mean, Roscoe thinks the woman's there as a plant, like, to bait them. I didn't understand that. Why would he think that she was luring them into a trap? Why wouldn't you? Okay, everything else had been a trap up to this point, and they just walked out of the trap where they're eating their friend's ribs. Completely justified. And then at some point, she said something about husband and kids and getting home to them, and Georgina was her name. And that's when I'm like, oh, it's the pastor's wife. And she was with the church group, and she's still alive, and she's being used as a sex slave. Yeah. And Zombie did say... That when we finally see the unrated version, her death will be a lot more graphic as the chainsaw cuts her right up between the legs and on up the body. Okay. If well, that's what you want, look for the Blu-ray. I'll put it this way. It's not usually what I'm requiring in a horror movie, but for this kind of movie, this movie is about pushing the limits and extremes. And I do feel like this, as far as violence content, 
I would be very disappointed with this movie. If you were expecting something to be really extreme, I don't even think this movie is as hard and as brutal as is Halloween. I think it's every bit as hard and brutal as Halloween. I think that the beatings here that they give and get are right on par with what young Michael does to the schoolyard bully. But I think that the difference between you guys, and perhaps I can get everybody to get along here on this, is this is filmed in more of a darker hue and tint and tone than Halloween was. I mean, Halloween was balls out in your face, buckets of blood everywhere. I mean, think of Danielle Harris laying on the floor where she'd been stabbed and she's topless and there's just blood everywhere. And you get to the end, Lori, and she's in the basement and i mean she's covered in blood there's so much blood and you don't get any of that here oh sherry moon zombie is covered in blood roscoe gets covered in blood but it's not i think because it was filmed in such a darker hue it doesn't appear as graphic at first glance as halloween the red isn't as red and zombie complained and complained and complained about the mpaa He's like, I don't know why the MPA even matters anymore. You can make something as violent as you want and as sick as you want and HBO will air it. You can put it out on Blu-ray and people will buy it. Only if you go to theaters do we have all this censorship going on. This isn't the movie he wants us to be reviewing. He wants us to be reviewing the version he can't get off his ass and release. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's why I'm not going to hold this too much accountable. It's an R-rated cut of a movie that he wanted to be unrated. So I get that, but I'm just warning people that do see this rated cut, it is very toned down compared to his R in Halloween. I think for me, the difference feels like that scene in Halloween where the bully gets beaten, it really felt brutal. Like a, just watching a child clubbed to death is just ugly and it, it makes you feel sick in your stomach. Here I'm desensitized. I really don't feel anything about any of the violence I see. So the bigger, the better. I want Grand Guignol. I want showers of blood. I mean, we do get a clown that gets his head cut off, but because the cutting is such, I don't feel like it's a geyser of blood the way that a Sam Raimi or even a Tarantino would do it. Okay, here's what I think the difference is, though. You're missing a lot of the sound that was also present in Halloween. When that kid gets beat up by Michael on that wooded area, the thump and the thwap of the skin, and like when he's hitting the kid's head, adds so much to the visceral experience mm -hmm. of that. Agreed. That it, it really does kind of make you just get this pit in your stomach because I am not queasy when it comes to violence in movies, but that one is a little bit uncomfortable to watch. And yeah, it could be because it's a child and another child's beating him. And I think the sounds are part of it. I noticed that this one, when anyone got stabbed in this movie, it was a very metallic sound. It wasn't what you'd expect to hear or what you've heard in other movies. I'm having a good time with it, though. I think that this is more action. And I feel I was just as grossed out in this as I was during some of his previous films. I was back in House of a Thousand Corpses territory, and I think this matches it in violence and gore and tone. Yeah, I didn't feel that this was anywhere near the level of violence. I mean, it just, it didn't seem, and maybe it's because it was missing the senses, you know? It was missing all of that to make it one whole package. Mm-hmm. I think this is perhaps hitting me harder because it's been a long time since I've seen a horror film like this. Like you said, Stuart, Lionsgate doesn't make them anymore. Kids these days, if I can get out my old man hat, like those ghosts, they don't like good psycho killers who are going to brutally attack you with chainsaws. This is a throwback 
to the 70s, 80s kind of slasher flick. And I found it refreshing to get that again. I'm not opposed to that. I'm trying to meet the movie where it's at. I know what I'm in for. I mean, I'm not asking for this to be The Exorcist or a horror classic, but I just feel like for a Rob movie, he's been defanged. His bite just doesn't feel as sharp as it used to. And that was a surprise. That doesn't go away when we get to our next attacker, Sex and Death. I loved Sex and Death. Loved them. I felt that they were the most inventive characters along with Sickhead. I mean, and maybe he's running a close tie here because he was unexpected, completely unexpected. But then you get E.G. Daly and her absolutely adorable voice. And damn, she looks good for being however old she is. I want to say she's 50-something, 60-something, whatever. Super cute because of her voice. And she's got this tall, lanky German guy in a fucking tutu. I mean, it's just, it's so wacky and it's so great. They're terrible killers. I mean, but they're fun and inventive and unlike any other killers you've seen. To me, I've already said I like E.G. Daly a lot. I felt like the heads here and her clown form could have been a little bit more intense. Now, I did see this in theaters in September, so Harley Quinn was heavy on my mind. In fact, there was a Suicide Squad life-sized standee of the entire squad in the lobby that I walked past to get to this. And I'm like, yeah, I think I'd like Harley Quinn if she was a little bit more murderous. But I was actually let down by Deathhead here that... He just is this scarred up, tall German guy. I just wish he was more out there. I mean, he's wearing a white tutu and garters. That is the laziest of the costumes in the entire movie. But I think it works, though, because they're a little off. You've got E.G. Daly, which, again, this is a big tell. She comes in and resurfaces, and she's still acting all screwed up, and she has a mesh shirt on with tape over her nipples and suspenders, and they're kind of a weirdly great couple because she's so short, he's so tall. They don't work together well. They split up. I would like to see the two of them work together like Rocket and Groot, or like Master and Blaster from Thunderdome, and instead, I get What he's trying to do, I feel these heads, they're the ones that I like least. They fail. I don't have a problem with any head. I'm going to restate that. I think they look kind of cool. I think for me, what's becoming problematic is there's no sense of escalation. They're just running into people and maybe it will take one of these participants out or maybe it won't. But I don't feel like the game is changing. Maybe the only thing you could say is that Roscoe is really cut up by this point. That sex reconnects with him. She gets a few stabs in him. We might think that he's not going to make it to the end of the movie. And in fact, his odds change from 50 to 1 to a million to 1. I think there's another plot going on here or another character arc. And I don't know if you guys think it goes anywhere, but they stop Deathhead by Charlie putting a knife to Sexhead's throat. And Charlie has to urge Venus to kill Deathhead. And then Charlie slits the throat of Sexhead. Charlie is becoming as murderous as those there. This is where the most dangerous game kind of comes into play. And some of the looks that Meg Foster gives and the hesitation makes me think there's an underdeveloped plot here of the Carnies 
thinking Charlie is going too far. I didn't necessarily pick up on that. I just picked up on the fact that Meg Foster is a better actress than everyone else here. I didn't think that necessarily they were worried she was becoming too murderous. It was almost because Venus had been like mothering her and like supporting her to this point. They were the two that are sticking together most and offering emotional support. But then you can actually see it at one point where Charlie goes, yeah, I'm going to fucking kill him. And Venus just kind of looks at her and I think it's an agreement. I don't think it's necessarily shock. But I do agree, she is the only one that can act. Well, what I got in the sense was the the women were devalued. They had the worst odds, and it's just not expected that women would do well in this environment. It was given to the black guy. I guess they were thinking of it like boxing. We're like, always bet on black, Wesley Snipes. But odds have changed. The two black guys are dead now. The other guy's mortally wounded. And these women used that to their advantage. They used their sex to distract death. And then when he was least expecting it, Venus came and got the kill shot in. So I think that you are seeing women emerge stronger and more victorious than, and are to be thought of as, as more formidable than maybe we first anticipated. But I don't get the sense, sorry, Sherry, but I'm just not getting the sense that she's losing control or becoming more savage. And with those two dispatched, it's time to call in the wolf, or in this case, Doomhead. It's our one shot in this entire movie where we leave the arena is to go to, I guess, Doomhead's home where he's got a Halloween date and he gets the call that he needs to leave her hanging and come in and finish the job. She's not too happy about that. Is that Amy Schumer? No! <laughs> That's far too attractive to be Amy Schumer. <laughs> Ow! I thought it was. I had to look it up. Apparently, it's uh, a porn actress. Ginger Lynn, I guess she's a porn actress. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Ginger Lynn. I didn't recognize her. I love her. She was in the Wing Commander games with Mark Hamill. Mm, you and Wing Commander. Yeah. Those games fucking rocked. Okay. She did a lot of porn. Yeah, I, did, I didn't recognize her here. I knew she had been in Devil's Rejects as well. I guess this nudity was nothing new for her then. But yeah, Doomhead is my favorite head. The monologue at the beginning cinched it. While Sickhead is a very close runner-up, this actor, Richard Brake, just brings menace and confidence and coolness. As Marjorie said, he reminds me a lot of Otis from House of a Thousand Corpses, especially when he's just brought in, called in, and he's kind of psyching himself up and he's just repeating, I'm not crazy, I'm in control. I'm not crazy, I'm in control. And he just says it over and over again. That really feels kind of like an Otis type thing to me. But I love him in it. And this is where the movie kicks back into high gear. I felt like sex and death had to wear a lull. Now, game on, motherfucker. Yeah, because you kind of don't know the extent of what he can do. I mean, I get the impression, I mean, he's the cleanup, he's the best, he's the one who can get anybody that has made it this far. But what does he do that is so much better than anyone else? Yeah, I feel like he's a lot of talk, and it ultimately proves to be too much talk. If he was less talk, he'd be more successful, but we don't know that until the end of the movie. I feel like he's trying an awful lot, that he knows that he's been cast to be the biggest badass, so he's really channeling it as much as he can, but the movie's not really aiding him. I don't feel like he gets to do a whole lot, and indeed doesn't feel a whole lot more menacing than, like, Peter Murphy in Bauhaus or something like that. I mean, he's goth. I'll get you that. He's got some scary teeth. 
and he's got a couple fun lines, but I just don't feel like he's such a physically threatening. I mean, all he has is switchblades. And indeed, if, if Meg Foster were, you know, able to hear, she would hear him coming up behind her. She would be alive. True. But he does take out Venus. And I love his little speech there where she's like, let them live. And he goes, what is it about me that gives you some impression I would spare them? Because if that's the case, I really have to work on my person to person demeanor. His lines make him so fun. I feel like it's forced. They're trying really hard to make this the biggest badass you've ever seen. But in a movie full of that, you've really got to do something. He just doesn't get a moment to really shine. He tries, God knows. They built him up, but he's ultimately not able to deliver on the promise. But the character was still good in his diatribes and monologues that he'd give. He couldn't just kill anybody. He had to go into a long oration about it. All right. I'll concede this point, Stuart. He's killing sheep. By this point, Roscoe is pretty beaten up. Charlie is always on the run. Venus. Venus and Charlie together have proved a formidable duo, but nobody of the Carnies is a proven fighter. You feel like there's a lot of luck and a lot of determination in them getting the upper hand. And so at no point does Doomhead overcome he kills venus pretty easily he kills roscoe he was gonna bleed out in a few minutes already yeah and he does not kill charlie so i see what you mean he doesn't have a moment where you're like oh shit he killed that person maybe we needed him to relieve one of the other heads like they throw in another head that seems pretty tough and when doomhead comes in he kills that head just so we can see he's the toughest of all instead of hearing him tell us he's the toughest. But again, this actor is just oozing screen presence in this role that I didn't even notice it during two watchings. Yeah, I'll give you that. I like the actor. I like the performance. My complaint isn't really with him. It's what he's been given to do and that nothing is escalating, that it just feels like more of the same here. We're at the climax and I don't really have a strong sense that they know how they want to the, end the movie. I'm curious to know if there are abandoned endings or alternate ideas. But basically, it just kind of ends with her getting out through the sewer, finding another puppet show, and him talking until the clock runs out and not being able to kill her. The ending was very similar to House of a Thousand Corpses, where that girl crawls through, comes up through the field... And kind of rebirths herself and then stumbles right into Captain Spaulding's car. Yeah, it had that vibe totally, which again was stealing blatantly from Texas Chainsaw. But here, it felt very forced on my second watching, because I did watch this again on iTunes before we recorded. When he introduces himself to the group, he's like, Oh, and by the way, the doors to the outside are open. Go ahead, go outdoors. It's really a clumsy line. And then I like the fact that she gets outdoors. I like that we're seeing these desaturated colors where the only thing really bright is the blood that's covering her as she's trying to get help. And you think it's over for her. Doomhead shows up. She can hardly walk. She can hardly move. She's dead. And the fact that she's saved by the bell... Zombie does not do a very good job of keeping us informed how much time is left. So I wish that 
I'd had a greater sense of that ticking clock instead of it being such a surprise. Oh, we were that close to the end. Last I heard, Doomhead had four hours and he said he could kill entire families. But it was a really nice turn to listen to him go on and on because she's even just like, fuck you. And like rolling her eyes at him and just, you can see the sense of her wanting just him to stab her and get it over with. And then he runs out of time. I think had you had that countdown timer, you would have been constantly focused on that and missed a lot of the movie. I'm surprised you guys are giving this a pass. I mean, he had four hours to kill them, and all he did was run off his mouth. And I think that that diminishes this character. I think he is less of a badass because of it. It doesn't feel like a funny irony. It feels like, wow, they just didn't want to make an ending in which they actually have a battle here. It, you know, he says it's unthinkable, and I agree. It's unthinkable that Cherry Moon Zombie is a winner. I just, I cannot conceive <laughs> or understand that. She's a winner because she keeps starring in films. <laughs> I have these two thoughts. One, I think Zombie made 31. The man doesn't need money, so I don't want to be that crass, but he just, he wasn't getting the film he wanted to make made, and he must have had some itch to direct again for whatever reason, and I think things are left open for sequel possibilities. I mean, we don't know much about the aristocrats, and Doomhead isn't killed because he's made five films and two of them were sequels, and I guess this is his sixth. I think that door is open, yet I think he never wants to walk through it. Maybe he wants to license these characters out for other people to do. I would be open to more movies with Doomhead in it. So I can see why you don't want to kill him. But yeah, the Saved by the Bell stuff is bad enough. But I like that she survived. I like the aristocrats there like, oh no, what are we going to do? What do they do? I mean, what consequence is there for her winning? I can't see that there's any. Well, she might have to be one of the heads next year. I thought that that's what they were going to go with. I thought they, they were building up to the idea that she would be sucked into it. They wouldn't let her go, but they would tempt her to become, where is she going to go? All of her troop is gone. She can be a star here in Murder World. But I think that the end scene with her facing off against Doom in that road and she's clenching her fists are like her awakening and she's just going to go out as much as she can and I don't think that we're supposed to think that she's going to be one of the heads. I think at this point, we're supposed to think she's a fighter. And I'm torn because I love the end scene. I love the rising crescendo of Aerosmith. I love the camera work, the close-up shots back and forth. I love her clenching her fist and him pulling out his blades. I love that we don't see the fight. All of this is awesome, except... What did she win? What all? What was the point of him even walking away if he was just going to track her down in his molester van later on and kill her? I don't think he tracked her down. I got the impression he was leaving, she was walking, it was same road, and he stumbled across her. Really? I thought for sure that he was sent by Malcolm McDowell's father murder because the last time we get to see the aristocrats in this movie, the women are asking Malcolm McDowell... What are we going to do with her? And he says he'll take care of it. And then we go to Doomhead driving up behind her. It seems like a little much for coincidence to me. Yeah, I took it as Doomhead seizing an opportunity because technically she's free because she made it. And I imagine he's going home to his ginger Lynn. He sees an opportunity to finish what he wasn't able to finish because he takes it as a personal affront. 
Like, he doesn't like to leave things unfinished, and this is the one time he failed because he ran his mouth. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of AVP catchphrase. No matter who wins, we lose, right? I mean, what does it matter? I think that's a key point here. I don't see that it has any consequence to the royalty, it has any consequence to Doomhead. Of course he's going to win. I mean, unless Rob Zombie is just going to, you know, so blinded the idea that this battered woman will somehow with her fists deal with a man that has knives but uh, i mean yeah this is the ending the devil's rejects and it's yes an ending he's given many times before of the idea of i'm just going to play some 70s classic rock and end it on sort of a going out in a blaze of glory ambiguity yeah i agree that i was thinking devil's rejects all over which was funny it was house of a thousand corpses till she got outdoors and then he was Back in Devil's Rejects. He's not blazing new ground. With no, no. And and I, it was a really interesting thing. He was asked in the Q&A afterwards, how have you grown as a filmmaker? I sat up in my seat. I'm like, oh, this is the question of the moment. How have you grown since your first two films? And his answer is, oh, I can shoot things a lot faster. I anticipate how much time I have in a day and I can get in what I need. So he may have gotten better time management skills but I don't think that he would even say that he's blazing new trails at this point. He's making the same movie he did when he first started and picked up a camera. But he did make this in only 20 days. He was very proud of that. Yeah, same thing as Lord of Salem. Well, I think we can all agree this is better than Lords of Salem, but let's go through it. Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend 31? Marjorie. I do recommend this movie. I do think it does have some fun aspects. It does have flaws. There are some areas where you get to and you're kind of like, okay, we need something else to happen here. We need more to go on instead of they get separated, someone gets killed, and you move on. There was a lot of creativity, I thought, in the different heads. I do think that this William Brake guy has perhaps a future as a younger Bill Mosley who was very good at giving monologues and he has a very distinct voice as well and a very distinct face and mouth. This guy could be the younger version of him to do that. I doubt this guy has Mosley's advanced degrees. No, no, no. Mosley's a genius. Yeah, I don't understand that either. You know, I and I really wish that we would have gotten more Venus. I think that she had a whole undeveloped story that wasn't really expounded on very much. And I think that she would have been a good survivor along with Sherry Moon Zombie because, I don't know, the two girls, and they kind of had this weird mother-daughter relationship where Venus was very caring. And I would have liked to see more Venus. I still thought she was kind of good, kind of creepy, but still really good. And Roscoe was pretty good. He's not a bad actor. He kind of reminds me of Jason Lee in a way, probably because he's tall and lanky, has a beard. But I do think that Rob Zombie could have done better with this as far as a few things with the story and maybe with the effects, maybe give me some blood, give me some sickening sounds, make me feel uncomfortable. Because at no point in this movie did I feel uncomfortable. I also think he could do well by casting someone else in lead female role. But I do recommend this movie. I, I think it's a good horror movie. You know, I did think that Sex Head and Death Head were really good because they were fun and inventive. It was a couple, was, whereas Psycho Head and Schizo Head were like brothers or something killing. That seemed about right for me. But I really liked the cannibalism scene. I thought that was a really nice touch. Kind of neat because you don't often see that happen in a horror movie. I did like the overall aspect of the plot with them doing this 
every Halloween. And it was really cool that it was set up like a haunted house because they'd go to different theme areas of where they were trapped in order to, you know, try to make their way out. And I really like that aspect of it. I also really enjoy Rob Zombie's aesthetic that he applies to movies. I love how he gives them this great time period feel without feeling like you transported 90s actors to the 70s. I mean, I got a real 70s vibe off everybody. You know, I think he does a great job with the soundtracks and the music. And I really love his filmmaking style because I do think he has a lot of interesting camera work he does. He does good things with light. He makes you wonder things like things will be in shadow or he'll freeze a frame and kind of let something sink in and then move on to something else. And he kept this one kind of dark and I don't know if that was to add to the tension we're feeling with the characters but it kind of worked I mean it wasn't in your face gore like you get in some movies and I'm okay with that and I think it just as a whole package it really worked well as a fun scary movie Stuart you know it's easy to watch that's the compliment I can give it it passed the time and I felt nothing doing it and I enjoyed some of the costuming a few of the art direction but you know what? I just don't do enough drugs to like a Rob Zombie movie. I, I honestly think the problem is that if I could shut off my mind and stop seeing all the things that he's referencing, if I believed what he was doing was original, I could really get into it. But honestly, this is just what he's done a million times before and what other people have done before better. Honest to God, don't make me give a compliment to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, but if you wanted a crazy murder world where these people with chainsaws and Dennis Hopper and all of that stretch the DJ, I definitely feel like that was a more creative, inventive, where is this going, wackadoodle fest than this movie. This movie is surprisingly tame and predictable. And that is just not what you want from Rob Zombie. If there's one thing that he should always deliver on is that his ability to outrage. And I found this movie, both to its benefit and detriment, was just kind of fine. It was just adequate. It just did exactly what you would expect it to do. And that's just not good enough. I'd be very curious to know that if the people that funded it were impressed with how it turned out. I mean, I would have never donated to his campaign. I'm not a fan of his work. I've always thought he could make a better movie than he has, but I'm not so sure anymore. I, I definitely feel like if you've enjoyed other films in his over, go ahead and give this a shot. But ultimately, I just think this movie's rather bland, and I think that makes it a mild not recommend. I'm confused. You said it's fine, and that's a not recommend? Yeah, it's it's mediocre, and by Rob Zombie standards, when all he does is exist to shock, to not be shocked is to fail. I've said this before, so I'll just sum up what I've said very quickly and not belabor the point. This is a return to House of a Thousand Corpses. Zombie is not pushing himself artistically at all. And it was very telling when he said he could just come up with any dumb horror idea and get it made. Well, he didn't come up with just any dumb horror idea. He looked at what he'd done before and did it again. That said, I haven't liked Zombie's recent movies very much at all. I heard he was making another one. It was with a heavy heart that I even agreed to go see it, let alone on a vacation. It was really difficult. So to go in and see he return to what he did before made me real happy. I give this a very solid recommend. It is back to that 70s grimy, bloody horror that's just a hell of a lot of fun with some great characters in it 
that, yeah, they're going to make great action figures someday, and I pray they make them. I didn't crowdfund this. I saw it. I'm like, yeah, right, Rob. I'm not giving you any more money. I saw Lords of Salem. I kind of wish I had now. Recommend. Yeah, I agree. And and that is what I like about Rob Zombie is that he has an affection for the look and the vibe of the horror movies of the 70s that I enjoy. I just don't see what he does different with them. I was trying to rank his films, and I realized if I was honest, I don't think I would give any of them really a pass. I think the best one for me was Halloween because it was his own take on the material, but certainly not a preferable one. And after a while, it just became so monotonous in his brutality. Again, I really struggle with the fact that I can never care about anyone on screen. But I do feel like that movie was an interesting juxtaposition to the original Carpenter movie, and I would rank that as his best. You recommended that, didn't you? I, yeah, kind of, you know, sort of, for the reasons that I'm describing. But I didn't really like it. I mean, uh, to be clear, I don't think that there's any reason that I would ever watch it again. After that, I feel like this one and House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects are all sort of fighting for the next couple slots. And then Halloween 2 and Lords of Salem are definitely way at the bottom. Oh boy. Ranking zombie films is kind of hard because I really think the remake of Halloween is up there with House of a Thousand Corpses. I love them both. I think the remake of Halloween is absolutely terrifying for the modern day and age. And again, he's there with that camera work again. And he's there with the aesthetic of the 70s. And he made Michael Myers a sympathetic character where you feel really bad for him. And it's just, it's a really well done movie. I think he did a great job at it. Malcolm McDowell, again, great Dr. Loomis. But then again, I really like House of a Thousand Corpses, too, because what the hell is it? It's just so, like, bonkers and great. I mean, in the DVD extras, if you've not watched the DVD extras on House of a Thousand Corpses, I beg you to watch them. And then come and tell me a knock-knock joke, because, oh my god, all I have to do to Arnie is go knock-knock, and we'll laugh hysterically about Tiny. It's really a great, fun movie. Then I'd probably do Devil's Rejects after that, even though, I mean, it is a sequel, but I don't feel like it's a sequel. I think it's a really great crime murder drama from the 70s. Totally different feel than House of a Thousand Corpses. And I think what happened was people just demanded the Fireflies back. But you get same character names, but different kind of movie, I think, because it doesn't seem to fit in the character in my mind anyway. But still a great movie. Then I'd put 31 in there because it's it's really good. It's a fun movie. It's a great Halloween movie, I think. Then I'd put Halloween 2 and I actually just rewatched that and it's not as bad as I thought in initial viewing, but it's still not great. I know it needs some work. It's pretty to watch though. It's got great visuals. And then I'd put Lords of Salem because I just could not like that movie. You know, reading him talk about not wanting to go to studios, not want to work in studios, he says some very bitter things like when you're forced to do projects you don't believe in. He, I think, intentionally tanked Halloween too. I really do believe that. If not completely intentionally tanked it, he just didn't give a fuck about it. I would say, to me, his best film still is House of a Thousand Corpses. I think that one was so original, fun, the actors clicked so well, the rock music vibe. Number two would be Halloween. This is a pretty close third and then devil's rejects would be number four i keep re-watching devil's rejects and it just doesn't hold up for me as well as some of the others do and i understand that to some it's a more dramatically fulfilling film it's got more solid characters but i like it when zombie goes horror i like his music because it was like a 
heavy metal haunted house. I like it when he tries to go more blood, more horror. And yet I find Lords of Salem and Halloween 2 deplorable. And Halloween 2's director's cut, I did go and I watched that. I decided I liked Zombie well enough to give that a shot. It's even worse than the theatrical cut. It's an ugly movie with no likable characters at all. It's strange because it is so different from the theatrical cut in like almost every take is a different take used and all to the detriment of the film. Piece of shit. So, well, I wasn't in danger of going back and watching it. And again, I'm not against Rob Zombie. I said at the top that I'm not a fan, but I see what you guys see. I see his aesthetic. I see his command of heavy metal paired with these imagery. But yeah, maybe he should make Groucho marks. Maybe he should really do something outside the box to either prove or disprove that he's a real filmmaker. Because I think that he's kind of said all that he's going to say in this genre and i would really like him to do something else i mean i just want him to paint a different picture i feel like he's having a midlife crisis why the fuck does rob zombie want to make a groucho marx picture what is his goal what is it that is driving him is he a big marx brothers fan shock value because you don't expect rob zombie to make a marx brothers or groucho an evening film. But if he's making it for shock value, it's you don't make that in the style of any of his movies thus far. That has to be slow and dramatic. If Groucho Marx starts cavorting to industrial music with a cover of an Ozzy Osbourne album, he's going to be laughed out of this country. Yeah, but you know, he did say in the Q&A that his tastes are different from what he puts out. That He recognizes that he puts out things that are about deplorable people and violence and all of that. But he says he likes slice of life movies. He likes Woody Allen movies. I think he could like the Marx Brothers. I think that he could have an affection for that. And it would definitely show a new side of him. What I'm looking from Rob Zombie at this point is something other than perpetual Halloween. Like, show that you do have some interest in something else in this world other than watching carnies be massacred. I feel like (laughs) that's just done to death. And I've seen it so many times now. And I just, I would be much more impressed if he did some other genre, but I can understand why it's difficult to find money. If your name's Rob Zombie, no one wants your romantic comedy. Yeah, fuck that. Wes Craven made music of the heart. I didn't want to see that shit either. You know, I don't want to see him make a Groucho Marx film, and I want to know why he wants to make a Groucho Marx film. What is his goal? What is he reaching for? Everything I do professionally, personally, podcasting. I'm reaching to better myself in some way. In what way does he want his life and career to go that Groucho Marx from the writer of a Brian Williams biopic is the next step for him? What's the movie after Groucho? Would you want it from a different person? Is it you're doubting this particular project or do you feel like he's putting on airs and being pretentious? I think he's putting on airs, being pretentious, and I don't want to see a Groucho Marx film no matter who makes it. I really (laughs) hope Scorsese doesn't do it with DiCaprio. Okay, all right. But with that, I do want to wish our listeners a happy Halloween. And reminder, if you want some more horror films, right now, today, you can get Eight more horror movie reviews if you donate to us for gold level or platinum level. If you do silver level, $10 or more. The first three Fly reviews covering the classic films in that series are out. 
This Friday, we're getting to a big one. David Cronenberg's The Fly. That's right. We're going through sort of the year of 1986 chronologically and the big horror movies that came out at that time. And we're now at that point when August 1986, he totally reinvented the way that we saw the Vincent Price movie. I think it's a classic that everyone should see. And we're going to talk all about it this Friday. Very exciting. And if you go gold or platinum, you can get the horror of 1986 series We're doing Silver this week because we're doing The Fly in the order in which it came out in 1986, but already released in that series, The Hitcher, House, Chopping Mall, April Fool's Day, and Vamp, and we've got three more of those reviews coming up after we get past The Fly 2. If you go Platinum, the Reanimator Trilogy, Quadrilogy, we're still figuring that out, but we're going to be doing those as well. A lot of horror movies for our horror fans. Head to NowPlayingPodcast.com, click the banner at the top. Every dollar you put in our trick-or-treat bag goes to make this show the best it can be. And it's your donation that allows us to do bonus podcasts. Just yesterday, our review of Sinister 2 came out. If you don't check more than one episode back in your podcast feed, or if you just go to our website... Sinister 2 was only in the spotlight for 24 hours because we released 31 a day early. But yes, we've reviewed Sinister and Sinister 2. We've been putting out three shows a week for the past couple weeks, and we're going to keep doing that. We've got a bonus show of Ferris Bueller's Day Off coming up, a bonus show with interviews with Chopping Mall's writer and director, and it's your donation that makes all these bonus shows possible. So be sure to check those out. So please head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner, and support the show. Well, happy Halloween, guys. I didn't have any snakes fly out of my face, but I had a good time. Thanks for listening to Now Playing, because in hell, everybody loves podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. I do believe the first kill came rather quickly this year. I'm rather disappointed. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find hundreds of movie reviews in our archives at nowplayingpodcast.com. You digging what you see, Pops? I reckon I do. At our website, you can hear reviews of other film series such as Maniac, House of a Thousand Corpses, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers Films, Star Trek, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. I'm sending you straight to the fucking pearly gates with a first class ticket. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. In moments of great accomplishment such as this, 
feel the need to celebrate. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I'm just making friends. You want to be my friend, don't you, Leo? You know I do. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. All in all, you've had a pretty good run. But uh, deep down inside, you must have known it all had to end somewhere. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. First it's free. After that, you lay out the green before Charlie gets too mean. <laughs> you can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. It's going to get so friendly, it's going to kill you. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. See, I don't think the last sound to puncture your eardrum should be the twang of your body falling apart. Snap! <laughs> Crunch. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. You know who said that? Do you really think I give a fuck? The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. I find this fascinating. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. What is going on inside your head? You want to know what's going on inside my head? I'll fucking tell you what's going on inside my head. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. See you later, Popeye. I'm gonna go get me some spinach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you Meg Foster, Richard Brake, not Blake, Brake. Can you turn the heat down in here? My phone's upstairs. Are you, are you getting a little overclamped or I'm something? Really you're you're waving it. yourself like you're a fucking southern man. I do declare. He <laughs> <laughs> said they're fanning. Eh? It's on the seersucker suit and. <laughs> What a fine image you put in my head. <laughs> oh, wait, hang on. I don't want to crank it to 85. That was the wrong way. No, 74, <laughs> please. Should be turning up to 77 earlier. It's fucking swapping. I was cold. <laughs> Yet another Rob Zombie airplane. Yeah. Zombie Airlines. <laughs> And then she is playing the... <clears throat> I'm apparently going through puberty. Hold on. <clears throat> <laughs>
All I know is I give 31 million to one odds that Cherry Moon Zombie can outact Katniss Everdeen. There's just no Jennifer Lawrence in this cast here. So if we're talking Jennifer Lawrence in Days of Future Past, I'd, I'll take that bet because I think Cherry Moon Zombie <laughs> can give that performance. Uh, perhaps. I know you have not forgiven her for that, but Cherry is... Ah! Oh, I'm going to fuck your skull, bitch, kind of thing. Somebody's going to make a ringtone out of that. <laughs> Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend 31? Marjorie. Okay, I have a question first, Arnie. Are you doing Malcolm McDowell or Doom? Malcolm McDowell. Okay, good, because that's what I thought, and I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> a very piss poor Malcolm McDowell. Exactly, or a really great Doom, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, even if someone doesn't survive... If your horse makes it the longest, I think you still win the kitty, don't you? It's a lot of animal references there, I guess. Sorry about that. <laughs> yes, I was very surprised this was not a sequel to the Kevin Spacey film 21 that I watched in preparation for this. This is a <laughs> standalone movie. 